What I want to speak to you about tonight is what I believe to be at the heart of the season of Lent. And I think that is a yielding of self to God. The heart of the season of Lent is a yielding of self to God. Ash Wednesday and the season of Lent as a whole is about coming before the Lord and unashamedly presenting yourself to him. No pretense, no deceit, simply saying to him in the words of the psalmist in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Lent is a season in which we meditate upon Jesus' call to repent and believe the good news. But more than that, it's not just a season to meditate upon that. It's a season to act upon that. Repent and believe the good news. And so tonight we enter into this season through a process of self-examination and confession. And finally, through the very tangible act of being marked with the sign of the cross with ashes. As a sign of penitence and as a sign of our mortality. But before we move into that time of self-examination that comes up after this, and of the ashes, I want to spend a few minutes talking um, about a couple of questions that I think are key if we are to move into this season. And they're questions that require a satisfactory answer, because without a satisfactory answer, they mean that Lent, and they mean that the whole of the Christian life is pointless, really. And those two questions are these. First, why should we yield ourselves to God? Why should we put ourselves before God, surrender ourselves to him? Allow him to search us and to know us. And secondly, how do we do that? If we decide that we answer positively to the first, that we should, well then how do we actually go about doing that? What does it look like to move from a posture opposed to God to a posture that's willing to lay ourselves before him and be open to his work? So why should we yield and what does it look like? And the way I want to go about answering these two questions is by looking at Psalm 32. It's one of the penitential psalms. There's seven of them. Um, and so why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles to chapter 32 of the book of Psalms. Now, the seven penitential psalms are more than about um, Israel as a nation's relationship to God. They are rather more intimate in nature. Um, they're about sin as a disordering and as a disorienting force in our lives. See, the psalmists know that sin is not solely an external issue. It's not solely an issue of failing to keep the law, of failing to, to abide by these religious uh, things that are put upon us. It's, it's also an intimate issue. And it, it both breaks our relationship with God and it affects us deeply at a personal level, physically, emotionally, psychologically, and even physically. And what I want us to appreciate about this is that sin is a devastating force, and it's one that we ignore at our own peril. So with that little introduction, I want to dive into this psalm, Psalm 32, because it is an invitation to examine that very thing, examine the brokenness in our own lives. So this psalm breaks up into three easy sections. Uh, so first section, verses 1 to 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. This is a helpful thing to have at the front of this psalm because it's essentially the thesis statement of the psalm. It's framed 
in language that sounds a lot like the Beatitudes. You know the Beatitudes. Jesus is teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Those types of things. But in this instance, the blessed, or perhaps better translated as the happy or the fortunate one, is she whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. As I said, this is the thesis statement for the entire psalm. And it's incredibly helpful in answering that first question, why should we yield to God? Well, because blessed is the one whose sin is forgiven. Happy is the one whom the Lord counts no iniquity against. To stand in a right relationship with God, having our sin forgiven and covered, has significance for our being in the world. Not only on our mood, but on our ability to live a full and a joyful life. See, we all stand in need of forgiveness. And to know that forgiveness, to know that there is nothing that stands between you and the Lord, is a remarkable experience, David tells us in this psalm. One of the interesting things about this first section is that the psalm doesn't even speculate about a life free from sin. It assumes sin. Everybody is touched by sin. And the psalmist knows this firsthand. He's experienced the crushing weight of unforgiven sin. And he knows that forgiveness carries with it the power for new life. And perhaps most remarkable of all, David teaches us that God assigns no guilt to the one that he's forgiven. To be forgiven is to be free, totally and completely. It's done. It's dealt with. That's what's on offer here. But maybe you think life's going quite well. Perhaps you're thinking you're already happy, you're already feeling rather fortunate and blessed, and you've never had to go through that humiliation of having to lay yourself before God. So why would you do it? Why would you surrender yourself to God in that instance? After all, isn't sin just a myth that we've conjured up as a church to keep you in a perpetual state of guilt? Yes, no, it's not. It's not. It's not a myth. Sin is not. And if as if David is anticipating that question being asked, he moves in the middle section of the psalm to describe his own experience of forgiveness. He focuses verse in, in verses 3 and 4 on the negative side of this. He focuses on the experience of a life unyielded to God. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as in the heat of summer. David is describing what it felt like to be crushed under the burden of guilt and of sin. Guilt that he acknowledged neither to God nor to himself. And what we learn from David is that sin is in fact real. And sin is felt as much as it is known. Look at the language, my bones wasted away, my groaning all day long, your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up. We can't deceive ourselves into thinking that sin and guilt are merely a matter of the mind, as though if we can just keep from thinking about it, that everything will be okay. We can't. Sin is a force that exists between us and God, and it blocks life with him. And this blockage can go unnoticed. It can go unnoticed for a long time 
I think both intentionally and unintentionally. We can ignore it intentionally because we refuse to come before the Lord and admit to him all the ways in which we know that our lives are not living up to the way that he wants, us them, wants them for us to be. But this blockage can also be unintentional because we have an incredible capacity for self-deception, for deceiving ourselves. We can easily talk ourselves into believing that although we've done something wrong, we did it for the right reasons. Sure, I lied to my friend or my spouse, but I, I wanted to protect them. That's why I did it. That's okay, isn't it? We can also talk ourselves into believing that even though the Bible is pretty clear on an issue, I know better. That's self-deception. It's just a little thing anyway, isn't it? But regardless of what the little thing is, the truth of it is the same. We deceive ourselves if we think that this is anything other than sin. We're not fooling God, and ultimately we're not even fooling ourselves. What the psalmist is pointing out is that no matter how good we might be at deceiving ourselves, sin must be acknowledged and the resulting guilt dealt with. Sin must be acknowledged and the resulting guilt dealt with. And if we refuse to do so at the level of the heart, and at the level of the mind, our bodies themselves will acknowledge it. Carrie and Ethan and I went to, to Hawaii a couple of months ago, I guess, and we took this perilous drive around the northwest tip of the island to go see this thing called the blowhole. Maybe some of you have been to see this. But it's, it's this point on the island where these massive waves crash in to the shoreline, and there's caves there. And as the water is forced into these caves, it has nowhere to go. So over hundreds, if not thousands, of years of this happening, uh, the water has worn away the roof of the cave, and there's now a big hole in the roof of the cave, a couple of feet across. And so now, as that water comes in, it shoots up through this hole in the roof of the cave, 40, 60 meters in the air. I mean, it's, it's incredible. You can see it from quite a ways away. Now, the reason I tell you that story is because that's essentially what the psalmist is describing. Sin is a force that if it doesn't have anywhere to go, is going to express itself in ways that we don't want it to. It needs to go somewhere. And when we fail to acknowledge it to God and direct it to him, the only one who can actually deal with it, it's going to express itself in ways that we don't intend. It might lead to relational problems. It might lead to psychological distress. It might even lead to physical problems, as the psalmist is describing. Weight loss, discomfort, restlessness, weakness. That's what David is sharing here. In other words, the body itself pays for sin. But then we get this incredible change in verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. This verse is the very simple answer to the second question that we asked at the beginning. What does it look like to yield to God? Whereas before, David kept silence, he tells us. Now he acknowledges his sin. He is describing the incredible release that comes with acknowledging that guilt directly to God. And what's remarkable about this is that acknowledgement is all that's required. David states the movement quite simply. I confessed and you forgave. I confessed and you forgave. There's nothing between the, that move. 
Forgiveness follows directly from confession. And the change David experiences when he moves from unyielding to a yielding posture before God is so dramatic that he wants everyone to know about it. He wants everyone to know the freedom that comes with that. Look at verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. The rush of great waters is describing the chaos of living in an unacknowledged and unconfessed sin. But that second half of it, verse 7, David contrasts it with his experience of acknowledging his sin to God. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. God hides me. He preserves me. He surrounds me with shouts of deliverance. This is incredible. The language is so personal from David. It's so intimate. And what we can't miss in these verses is the clear truth that everything in our relationship with God depends on confessing rather than concealing, making it known rather than hiding it. Because the one thing this psalm does not allow is any doubt about the reality of God and the reality of our accountability before him. God is not a myth. Sin is not a myth, David is telling us. And freedom from our sin can only come from having it dealt with by God. So don't be like a horse or a mule, he says in the next few verses. In other words, don't be stubborn. Don't be foolish about this. This isn't complicated. It's a simple choice that he holds out right at the end of the psalm before the listener. We can choose either way. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. We can continue to live in the pain of unacknowledged sin, or we can experience restored peace with God. We can choose either way, but only one of them leads to life and freedom. Now, one further thought before I close this up. It seems too easy, doesn't it? Well, at least that's what I was thinking this week as I, as I studied this text and as I wrote this. It just seems a little too easy. All that's required of me and of you and anyone who wants to be forgiven and reconciled with God is that you acknowledge your sin before him, that you confess. That's it. And when God has forgiven us, he no longer assigns any guilt to us for what we've done. It's gone. It's done. And all it takes is a spoken acknowledgement. This is what I've done, Lord. And on the one hand, that sounds pretty great, I think. I mean, I don't want to go on feeling guilty about something that I've been forgiven for. No one wants that to be held over them. But what about when someone has really hurt you? What about when someone has hurt you so deeply that you can't even explain it, or that you've done that to somebody else? Am I comfortable with the idea of God forgiving us and counting no guilt against us for that? To be perfectly honest, no, I'm not. I struggle with that idea. I struggle with the idea of someone not having to pay for the cost of the wrongs that they've done. But I was reminded as I did this that I think that's to forget what forgiveness has actually cost God. 
The only reason God can pronounce us free from sin and guilt is because God himself has borne the cost of it on the cross. And for me to say that it's too easy is an affront to Jesus' sacrifice. It costs God everything, everything to declare us innocent. And the moment I forget that, I make a mockery of God. So this psalm is not an invitation to self-righteousness, that we now know the parameters of what forgiveness is, what is required of forgiveness, and now we can just go on living a self-righteous life. No. This is an invitation to self-examination, to stand before our just and merciful God and to say to him, search me and know my heart, try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. And as with most things in our walk with God, that's not a one-time event. It's rather a way of life that's being offered. So as we enter this season of Lent, I would encourage you to do exactly that. Invite the Lord to search you and to know your heart and to lead you in the way everlasting.